0: Last week, or two weeks ago, excuse me, Rick preached on the importance of the local church. He got us started in three consecutive mini-series. Today I'm going to continue on talking about the importance of the local church, but how that's connected to giving. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dive right in. Well, Father, we need you now. We need an abundant amount of grace this morning as we look at... Money and sex. Sex and money. These are the most uncomfortable topics probably to talk about in marriage. At least statistics bear that out. Also, probably the most two uncomfortable topics to talk about in the church. Again, statistics seem to bear that out. Yet, the Bible speaks extensively on both topics. And this morning, as you guests from the passage in my prayer. This morning I'm going to tackle the issue of money and what the Bible tells us about money and why it's important to think well about money. Why is it hard to talk about money even though the Bible addresses it time and time and time again? There's several reasons. Here's one that came to my mind reason why it's hard to talk about money is because nothing tells us more what we value deep down inside than our money, how we spend our money. How you and I use our money re- reveals what we value most in life, And what we, and, when, and when what we value is tested, it's easy to get defensive, but here's the deal for this morning, and I hope This removes the tension that can exist when the topic of money comes up in church. I don't want your money. Now, that seems like an odd statement for a church planner to make, right? I wrote that down, and I'm like, oh, playing church, you know? But it's the truth. What I want you to hear this morning is that everything you own, every dollar you've inherited or earned all of it belongs to the Lord not to me but to the Lord and you and me by God's grace are called by God to steward what he has given us I hope that knowing that the truth that everything we own belongs to the Lord cuts the legs out of the tension that some people can have in the heart myself included by the way when the topic of money comes up on a Sunday morning. So yes, we need sermons on money because you can't get away from the topic in the scriptures. So my hope and prayer for this message, which as I prayed earlier, would that this would be a grace-saturated sermon on money. It's God's grace that will help us see from the Bible that we can use our money as wholehearted acts of devotion to God. And that can be really exciting. This sermon has less to do with bank accounts and everything to do with our heart. So in order to think well about what the Bible tells us regarding money, we'll be looking at, as you know, 1 Chronicles 29. Uh, We're going to read how King David presents to Israel uh, a kingdom need, and we're going to read how Israel responded to that particular need. We are encountering a passage that shows us what it looks like to have wholehearted devotion to the glorious God of the universe. So now let's, let's get our bearings about where we're at in the Bible. Just on a hunch, I'm going to guess that many of you do not wake up thinking about First and Second Chronicles. Uh, therefore, I' provide some context about the Book of Chronicles for us this morning. First and Second Chronicles are actually one book in the Hebrew Bible they were separated into two books with the development of the Greek old testament which is why your english translation has first and second chronicles a bit like the four new testament gospels some of the content in first and second chronicles can be found in first and second kings and first and second samuel naturally this means there are similarities in these various old testament books but there's also a ton of supporting differences in these books a reason why First and Second Chronicles was penned. Is that the author wanted to provide a positive view of history in Israel and a positive view of King David? I'll get to what that means in a moment. What is interesting about today's passage is that it's the last recorded event in the Bible about King David. The great King David wrote all those. Psalms. He was a man after God's own heart. He was a great warrior as well as a terrible sinner who committed adultery. The great King David. For mostly good and some bad, David left his mark on Israel. And at the end of his life, there was one more thing David wanted to accomplish. David wanted to ensure that a temple would be built for the Lord. The temple is significant in the Bible. The temple connects back to the building of the tabernacle built by Moses, Exodus 26, which points further back to the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, to the Garden of Eden, where the presence of God dwelt with uncorrupted sin, uncorrupted man and sinless man, excuse me. The Garden of Eden, the Ark of the Covenant, the Tabernacle, and now the Temple in 1 Chronicles 29 were places where a holy God could dwell in the midst of his people. So, 1 Chronicles 29 does a lot of pointing back. But it also points forward. You can hear this foreshadowed in 1 Chronicles 22. Here's what David says. He, Solomon shall build a house for my name. That's where we're going to be at today. He shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish his royal throne in Israel forever. Forever. The author of Chronicles knows that just as David will die, so will his son Solomon die. But through this kingly line will come another king who is the actualized Temple, who will establish a new covenant and kingdom and live on forever. We know this to be the person of Jesus Christ. So, before actually diving into the passage, I want to tell you why I frame this sermon looking backwards and forwards. I tell you all this because when we read a passage in the Old Testament, it is important to know the history from which it comes from, and it's vital to know what it's pointing toward. And when we talk about the Old Testament temple, we know right away there is a New Testament significance. So I'm reading 1 Chronicles 29 in light of its biblical past, present, and future. And what we're going to see from 1 Chronicles 29 is a biblical and financial principle that transcends past, present, and future. It transcends temple or church. Church. Here's the principle. The people of God demonstrate their wholehearted devotion to God by giving financially to God's kingdom purposes. That's it. And this one statement is my sermon. The people of God demonstrate their wholehearted devotion to God by giving financially to God's kingdom purposes. And if what I say is true, this principle is connected to past, present, and future. This means God is always, always up to something. Specifically, God is on a mission to redeem his elect people through Jesus Christ. And God invites us, his people, to joyfully partake in his kingdom purposes. Here are, here are two verses from today's passage, which I've kind of composed this biblical principle. 1 Chronicles 29, verse 11 and 16. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Verse 16. O Lord our God, all of this abundance that we have provided for your building, you a house for your holy name, comes from your hand and is all your own. Our wholehearted devotion to God is to a God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, Psalm 50. Who owns all the possessions on the earth, Psalm 104, verse 24. Even the wallet in my pocket, in your pocket. He owns that as well. I want us to move toward God in our finances this morning. I want us to see what David saw. God is doing something in our midst and we can join him and rejoice because we serve a gracious and generous God he is gracious and generous so this sermon is hopefully like I said a grace infused grace empowering grace and gospel advancing message so let's dive into the details of this instructive and beautiful passage this passage can be divided into two very clean sections Uh, the first section is the need verses one to nine so if you're looking at your Bibles, we're going to go through verses 1 to 9. and the second section, is going to be verses 10 to 20. That's David's prayer. So let's take them one at a time. In verses 1 to 9, David is clear about the need, and David is clear about the response he hopes to receive from Israel as he tells them their need. He wants Israel to give to the construction of the temple. Uh, David calls the temple a house for God in verse 2. He also says... The palace will not be for man, but for the Lord God. David is using different Hebrew words to describe the purpose of the temple. By calling the temple a house, David is saying, God lives here, dwells here, takes up residence here. By saying the temple is a palace, David literally means this is a palatial structure, which is to say that it's a citadel or a fortress for God on earth. The Hebrew word for palace is also a reminder to David's son Solomon, who represents the next generation and all of Israel, that their earthly kingdom belongs to God, and ultimately he is the one enthroned above Oh, he's enthroned over Israel. Also, note from these verses David's insistence that the temple is not for him or for Israel, but it's for the Lord God. By making this statement, David is revealing his motive for the temple construction. His God is worthy of the best he has to offer. His God is worthy to dwell in a place that is second to none on earth. The temple would be a place where they could encounter and worship their God. This is a picture of God's kindness to create a way for man to dwell with his holiness. The temple is significant in another way the temple would be a beacon of light to the nations. Remember, God is always on mission to redeem his people, and the temple served an important place in redemptive history. So in order to aid in the construction of the temple, David, as the proverb goes, is going to put his money where his mouth is. In verse 2, David indicated the resources that would come from the national treasure, so all the plunder that they received during war. But in verse 3, David makes his own contribution. Why is David going to give? He is giving to demonstrate his devotion to God. Here's the verse. Moreover, in addition to the law I have provided for the Holy House, basically from the government, national treasure, I have treasure of my own gold and silver. And because of my devotion to the house of my God, I will give it to the house of my God. Following verse 3, we read of David's contribution. Listen, his contribution is staggering. His contribution includes 33,000 talents of gold, 7,000 talents of silver. For perspective, one talent of gold, one talent of gold was worth, for today, $1.25 million. And one talent of silver is worth about $16,500. If you do the math, I'd use a calculator because I'm not good at math, David's personal gold and silver is getting into the billions with a B dollars. David also gave bronze, iron, onyx, all kinds of precious stones and marble. To be clear, David had accumulated great wealth. There's no question about that. But this was all the more reason to give abundantly to God's kingdom purposes. And just as David gave freely, he called on the entire assembly of Israel to give freely to the temple. After David leads out by example, he poses the question to the assembly, who then will offer willingly, consecrating himself today, The Lord. Who then will offer willingly? There are two Hebrew words in verse 5 that deserve our attention. It gets to the heart of what David is posing here. These words are important. First, David wants the assembly to give willingly or voluntarily to the temple. David, the king of Israel, could have imposed a tax in order to pay for the temple. He could have done that. As a matter of fact, later in biblical history, a tax was imposed from the temple. There wasn't a House of Representatives and Senate holding David back from passing this kind of legislation. So why make the giving voluntary? Without question, giving voluntary, or not giving voluntary, revealed what mattered most to the people often the extent to which we are prepared to put at risk our material wealth and our well-being is a measure of the seriousness that we take our discipleship. That was no different for Israel than it is for the church. For David, the emphasis on his speech, he's given this speech, the emphasis is on the giver and not the gift. Which helps explain why David says Israel will be consecrating itself to the Lord when they freely or voluntarily give to the Lord. So, consecrate's that second Hebrew word worth noting in verse 5. Throughout Chronicles, the word consecrate is often used for priests who are ordained by God. New Testament churches now use the word ordained for pastors. I've been ordained as a pastor ordained priests in the Old Testament were set apart by God to help kind of facilitate worship. There's more to that, but let's just use that for now for simplicity's sake. Now David is saying, by freely giving to God, you are set apart and performing an act of worship to God. You are, in a very real way, demonstrating what you value most in life. Good time to pause. Pause. Think about what you value most in life. Just think, you know. I'm guessing your money can be traced back to that value. I know it does for me. And look at the response of the people to David's question who then will give freely, willingly, voluntarily? The response is remarkable, it is truly remarkable. The people of Israel gave above and beyond toward the temple project. And it says in verse 6 the offering they gave was on their own free will, and the giving was enormous. They gave 5,000 and 10,000 darks of gold, which would be about 190 tons of gold. They gave 10,000 talents of silver, which is about 375 tons of silver and obviously they gave more than that you get the picture and so the people responded to David's question by giving and in verse 9 we read the response from their giving so they were called to give they gave and then what happened then the people rejoiced they rejoiced because they had given willingly for with a whole heart they had offered freely to the lord David the king also greatly rejoiced. Here is the same principle given in the New Testament by the Apostle Paul. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Yes, I do believe that giving financially to the Lord is an act of obedience, but we have to connect obedience to the heart. And when obedience happens from the heart, you give freely and you give abundantly. So between verses 1 and 9, God is trying to get to the root of how we view money. Bottom line, your money follows your heart. What caused the people and David to rejoice right after depleting the bank account? They rejoice in the one whom they gave to. They didn't rejoice over their own ability to give. That's not what's going on here. Hey, I give, look at me. They rejoiced in who God is, they rejoiced in the privilege to give to the kingdom of God. Listen, God's grace is at work in your life every time you give to the kingdom. His grace is at work in your life every time you do that. His grace is at work in your life when you give cheerfully and joyfully. I gave to the kingdom, praise God, on mission. That's God's grace at work in your life. For for a moment, I want to pause from looking at 1 Corinthians 29 and provide a parenthetical statement. And I provide a parenthetical statement because the statistics are staggering about people who give and don't give in the church. So I'm going to talk about that for a moment. First, you should know, I don't know who does and does not give to this local church. I stay away from that information as much as possible. So don't think I got like a spreadsheet underneath the sermon notes here, and I'm like, "No, no, it's not the case at all. But if you find it difficult to give back to the Lord what He has given you, I want to provide you with with several more thoughts about kingdom finances so that you can pray about them during the rest of the sermon and beyond. As we've already seen, giving is an act of worship. We will see this emphasized more in a moment. If you desire to wholeheartedly worship God, you are called by God to give toward kingdom purposes. That would be the first point. Another point. Uh, Paul Tripp, so I was writing this sermon, inbox, crossway, Paul Tripp article on money. I'm like, winner. <laughs> so he made this statement, and I really like it. We like to have control of our money. Oh, sorry, here's the quote. We're never smarter with our money more than God. We're never smarter with our money more than God. We like to have control with our money, but the reality is we need to loosen our grip on money and allow God to have control. We, ha- we have to acknowledge that God is better with our money than we are with our money. Divesting personal finances in order to invest into the kingdom of God will always provide a positive return. Next point. I want to make to those who are not currently giving. How you use your money right now will demonstrate what you are living for. Are you living for worldly pleasure and comfort or eternal purposes? If you begin to give toward eternal purposes, you'll, you'll find you'll be filled with joy about your giving, just like Israel. And, and another point I want to make to those who are trying to put together, what does it look like to give? What does it mean to give to kingdom purposes and to local churches? A lack of money is not an excuse to not give. I'm I was thinking about this passage that I was praying earlier. It's not in my notes, but it's worth noting. From the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is teaching in the temple at this point in the Gospel of Mark. And of course, um, scribes are trying to get at him and trick him and fool him with questions. But this happens. This scene takes place. And Jesus sat down opposite the treasury, so he's teaching. Then he sat down and he watched people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, College students, it's for you. Truly, I say to you, this poor woman has put more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had and all she had to live on. David gave out of his abundance, praise God. This woman gave out of her poverty, praise God. Which shows you God is getting at our heart here. When I was in seminary, Shreese and I were married and money was very, 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 tight. Very tight. Um, and I remember to my embarrassment that I suggested to Sharice that we stop giving to the local church, or at the very least, cut back on our tithe. You know, Sharice being the faithful and biblical woman that she is, refused. She entrusted our money... And our bills to God. I'm grateful for her faithful example. As for me, the Lord taught me, the seminary student and future pastor, a valuable lesson about kingdom finances. God was after my heart, he still is, but it was definitely revealed at that moment. Please hear me. If you're not giving right now, I don't make these statements to shame you. Farthest thing from my intent. I make these statements so that you can take an honest and sober look at your heart and consider how God is calling you to respond. You may never have the money that David had to give, the numerical value of your paycheck misses the point about biblical giving. The point is that your wholehearted worship of God means giving back what God has graciously given to you. So, close parentheses, back to the text. Moving on to verse 10, and after David gives his stirring speech about giving to the construction of the temple, and Israel responded by giving... Giving. David turns his attention to the Lord in a prayer. And this prayer, I think, is more stirring than David's speech. Just listen to how David begins his prayer. It's no wonder he gave so much to the Lord. Blessed are you, O Lord. That's his God. Bless you, God. The God of Israel, our Father, Forever and ever, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. David knows his humble position and the incalculable eminence of God. David uses terms great power, glory, victory, and majesty to describe his God. The Lord demonstrated his greatness when he led Israel into the promised land. God displayed his power when he breathed the world into existence. God's glory is always on display through his created world. God's victory was pronounced for David when Israel was led out of Egypt and out of slavery. And now for David, God's majesty is going to be reflected by the building of the temple. What a way for David to pray. He reflects, marvels, and honors his God, not only with his money, But with his words, just think about it for a moment. If you believe God is great in your life, powerful to the point where there is no equal, upheld in glory, victorious over your sin and full of majesty, then you know what David knows. God is sovereign over everything, including our money and the bank account. And these truths from verses 12 and 16, in light of all what David said makes a lot of sense. Verse 12, both riches and honor come from you and you rule over all. Verse 16, O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name, all that we've given to you, to this construction project, comes from your hand and is all your own. Like, I'm just in my head right now, thinking about everything I own. My house, well, my mortgage, (laughs) you know, all your stuff, your phone, bank account. And it's not mine. It's the Lord's. Because of sin, we can take exception with verses 12 and 16. You see, a fundamental problem we have when it comes to giving to kingdom work is that we think all the money, stuff, the house, the car, the cell phone, etc. is ours. We tell ourselves, I've earned it, I've worked hard, I deserve it. And all that's a lie. Every penny you have is not yours. It never came from you. King David gave billions in dollars, and yet he knew he really didn't own a dime. Not a dime. Apostle Paul picks up on this in 1 Corinthians. What do you have that you did not receive? Receive from God. Instead, by God's grace, we are called to manage and steward the resources given to us. The truth that everything we have comes from God is the foundation for the doctrine of stewardship. How do you use your money? How do you steward your money? Its basis is this. Since our property belongs to God, Psalm 24, and since we hold it temporarily in trust... 1 Chronicles 29, verses 15 to 16. It should be therefore used for God, Luke 17, 10. I know this type of thinking is radical. It smacks in the face of everything you hear from the culture, all the ads. All, it all points back on you, right? all points back on me. The truth is this, Jesus wants us to live radically biblical lives, especially when it comes to how we use our money. What did Jesus say about how we should steward our money? Matthew 6, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. What is Jesus telling us? The people of God demonstrate their wholehearted devotion to God by giving financially to God's kingdom purposes, to heavenly purposes. Treasures in heaven will outlast all of our earthly treasures. Do not believe the lie that ultimate happiness is found in earthly treasures. Instead, believe the truth that happiness is found in a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Your life on this earth is fleeting, and the most responsible way for you to use your money is to advance God's gospel right here and all around the world. That's what he calls us to. So what he calls me to. Invest into heavenly tre- treasures while you still have a chance on this earth. Here's what an older, wiser, and I think at this point in his life, circumspect David acknowledged in his prayer. For we are strangers before you and sojourners, as all of our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow, and there is no abiding. Compared to eternity, David's life is a vapor. My life is a vapor. It's gone. And because life is short, he isn't, David, isn't going to eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow he will die. He opens up his life and his heart to God so that he can live for God. He's not going to live for his earthly kingdom, but he's going to live and give toward an everlasting and spiritual kingdom. It's remarkable to think about how David the greatest earthly king of Israel, willingly and knowingly gave abundantly to the temple that he would not live to see completed. That, my friends, is a kingdom perspective on how to use your money. Again, David was not concerned about himself, but he was concerned about being faithful to God, and he was concerned for the next generation of worshipers. Verses 18 and 19. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep forever forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts toward you. David's praying for the next generation. Grant to Solomon, my son, a whole heart that he may keep your commandments, your testimonies, and your statutes, performing all, and that he may build the palace for which I have made provision. So, from 1 Chronicles 29, three realities are now intersecting for David. Money, the kingdom of God, and the impact he can have on the next generation. I toiled, I took a lot of time trying to figure out how to say what I'm going to say next. So, I'm going to say it with the utmost honor and respect. If the word retirement is now a part of your regular vocabulary, I think the Lord would call you to look at David and ask how these three realities are intersecting in your life. Money, the kingdom of God, and the impact you can have on on the next generation in this local church. And by the way, the kingdom of God and the next generation also intersects with how you use your time and your talents. Listen, older brothers and sisters, the next generation must benefit from you. They must benefit from you. Your godly example is needed. I need it. Don't coast in and through retirement. Now is the time to press in and participate in kingdom purposes like you have never done before, just like David was doing. He was concerned about the next generation. He was giving toward the construction of the temple and using his time and talents to help see that fulfilled while he was still on earth. If you've been around Sovereign Grace Church for longer than a cup of coffee, You know that we're at the end of our own building project. I heard a woohoo somewhere. It was just in my ear. I thought I heard. I'm clearly making stuff up now. You know that. We talked about it. We're excited about it. Um, And it's easy to map on what is said in 1 Chronicles 29 with what the text has shown us this morning with our current situation. And it's important to show you the similarities and differences between the construction of the temple in the Old Testament and the building of a local church. The major difference between the temple and the church is that the temple was a place where God dwelt. Today, God dwells in the people of God through faith in Jesus Christ. All that was provided by the temple, the rituals, the sacrificial worship, has been fulfilled. In Jesus. Jesus is the everlasting temple and it's Jesus who dwells and abides in his chosen people in the gospel of John we read of the time in righteous anger uh, Jesus cleared the temple of individuals who were trying to turn a prophet after clearing the temple with a whip made from cords we read of this exchange so the Jews said to him Jesus what sign do you show us for doing these things and Jesus answered them Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered all that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. In God's kindness... He dwelt with his people in the tabernacle. In God's kindness, he dwelt with his people to the temple. And now in God's perfect timing and kindness, God dwells with his people through Jesus Christ. In Christ, there is purity and holiness. In Christ, a Christian can boldly approach his or her heavenly Father. There is no longer a need for a temple to be erected in Jerusalem because Jesus Christ is the temple. And when you give to this local church, you give toward the cause of Christ, which is the advancement of the gospel. So why are we building out a 24-7 outpost, a 500 Travelers Trail in Burnsville? The negation of the temple does not necessarily negate the need for a church building. The people of God, where God now dwells through Christ, still need a place to gather and worship. The church building is not a mediator for God's people, but is now a mechanism in which we're able to join God's mission to grow in the gospel, our discipleship, and go with the gospel. We want to tell people about Jesus Christ. So my initial proposition statement still stands. The people of God demonstrate their wholehearted devotion to God by giving financially to God's kingdom purposes. And the building at 500 Traveler's Trail is going to serve kingdom purposes. Yes, it will be different. It will be. I say it's different. I'm not even going to be there for, you know. It's going to be different. Uh, there's going to be change. Israel had to adjust to change when God went from dwelling in the tabernacle to the temple. And yes, there are going to be new challenges on the horizon. But no matter the differences, no matter the change, no matter the challenges, we will allow God to use the new building as a gathering place for worship. Think about less than a month. we got a new gathering place for worship. And there's going to be an outpost for local and global missions to tell people about the good news of Jesus Christ. That is exciting stuff. The mission of this local church will not change. It's the unchanging mission of God that we give to. And I can ask the same question David asked in verse 9. Who then will offer willingly consecrating himself today to the Lord? Who then? I ask the question because the effort to get into a building, plant churches, support local and global missions requires all of us to get involved. All of us. I cannot emphasize the point enough. The mission of the church, and by church I now mean this local church, should not rest on the backs of a few people. By God's grace, by God's grace, God wants to use all of us. All of us. God desires everyone in this church to be on mission. God wants you to use your time, your talents for His kingdom purposes. As it pertains to money, God wants you to realize that giving to the local church is an act of wholehearted worship that results in gospel advancement. The greatest kingdom purpose that you can give toward is your local church. Listen, if you're a Christian and you're here with us this morning, you're a guest, thank you for being here. My hope and prayer is that you are a part of a gospel-loving, gospel-advancing local church, and you're tithing to that local church. I mean that. Bless that local church. Honor God in that place. Thank you for being here, but please consider how you're doing that. And everyone else who calls Sovereign Grace Church home. Exciting days are ahead. Exciting days are ahead for you. This is a great season to rejoice we can rejoice just like Israel rejoiced. God is up to something, and that something is he is on mission to redeem his people through Jesus Christ. And that is a worthy cause to give toward. We can honor God with our finances. wholehearted devotion, it says in the text, toward God by giving to the mission, to the advancement of the gospel right here at Sovereign Grace Church.